What is the main issue that separates the left from the right, from the Christian from the secular? This is the question I want to answer in this episode of Way Life. Hi, I'm Mike Tyree, minister, husband, and father of five awesome kids. I want to thank everyone that has been listening to these past episodes in support of this ministry. If you haven't already hit the subscribe button, please do so. We want to try to reach as many people as we can with this message. So, what is the most important issue facing America today? Take any issue that's out there. Racism, immigration, the economy, alcohol and drug addiction, prostitution, sexual orientation, slavery, sex trafficking, abortion, education. Of all these issues, what is the one issue that if we get it right, we win everything, and if we get it wrong, we lose everything? How you view this one issue determines if we still exist as a free nation or as an enslaved one. All of these issues have, at its core, the issue of life. The one main issue that has a sign at the beginning of the fork in the road is life. Any discussion on any issue starts with how you value life. Now you might be thinking that I'm going to talk about abortion and that's only partly true. The most important issue is life in general, all of life, that of the unborn, but also of every other human being on the face of the planet. How you view life will determine how you look at the rest of the world. If you know how a politician's view is on the issue of life, you can pretty much know what his views are on all the other issues. It's the foundation on which all other issues are built on. It's like in marriage. There are all kinds of issues that are involved in a relationship, like communication, finances, how to raise kids. But love is the foundational issue. If there is no love, the whole structure is unstable and most likely will collapse. Life is that foundational issue that supports all other issues. Life is where the conflict of visions begins. The most unique characteristic of Christianity is the way that they value life. The central theme of Christ's teachings is how we should treat others. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus was answering a question from a lawyer about how to get to heaven, in which Jesus responded by telling him to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Then the lawyer asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus starts telling him a parable about a man who was walking on the road and was attacked. They robbed and beat him almost to death. A Jewish priest walked up and saw the man bleeding and walked around him, and then a Levite came by, and he too walked around him. And then finally a Samaritan. Now the Samaritan not only helped him on the road, but brought him to an inn and paid the innkeeper to tend to his wounds and told him if the amount came to more, he would pay him when he came back through. Then Jesus asked the lawyer, So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, Well, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This idea was revolutionary. The world had never heard teaching like this before. In ancient Greece, if you didn't like the sex of the baby or the baby was deformed or for whatever reason, they could take the newborn to the woods and either let the baby die from the elements or from the wild animals. Now it's hard to imagine 
but this was the accepted way of life in the ancient world. Then here comes this radical teacher teaching the idea of considering others as important as yourself. His teaching about showing mercy in a world that has little of it. This new concept shook the world. It changed the entire concept of how society should live. When sexual perversion was normal in the ancient times, Christianity came along and said that it degrades the value of the individual and Christianity canceled that culture. When the plague spread throughout the Roman Empire during the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 13th centuries, Christians responded by tending to the sick. In the 2nd century, when the plague hit, it killed a quarter to two-thirds of the population. Gallian, who was a physician, a leading physician of the time, he fled his, to his country estate and to escape the plague because he knew he could do nothing to help the spread of the disease. In all of these plagues, Christians came and took care of the abandoned and dying. While others fled, Christians ran into where the diseased were at. When the first symptoms were evident, families would throw their own family members out into the urine-soaked streets and abandon them. And it's possible that thousands were saved simply by the Christians giving basic nursing to the diseased. The number of converts that were made is unknown, but I'm sure thousands were converted after seeing the compassion of the Christians. In the 4th century, the Emperor Julian tried to restore paganism to Rome and had pagan priests compete with Christian charities. They failed. Why? Their faith did not include risking their own life for the life of a stranger. For over 1,700 years, these Christian values worked within tyrannical governments. All nations operated under these oppressive governments, and Christians were there showing the love of Christ. This was pretty much how the world operated until America. America was different. For the first time in the history of the world, a nation was built upon the value of the individual. You see this in the Declaration of Independence when it says, All men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This was so revolutionary because countries at that time did not recognize the value of the people. Governments worked from the top down. In America, government worked from the bottom up. In that sentence, the founders recognized that every person had worth. When God created us, he put us all on the same equal plane. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him. That whoever is everybody. No qualifiers there. No color charts. No hierarchy. Just whoever. This concept that Christ taught is woven into the fabric of America. Now, not all of these individual values came at once, but as Martin Luther King Jr. said, a promissory note was given, and gradually these ideas were, that were birthed in the Declaration became reality. It was in the deep belief in the value and the worth of every life that led to the emancipation of the slaves, women's rights, civil rights movements, child labor laws, prison reform, and all other kinds of human rights issues. In World War II, the enemy 
would much rather surrender to the Americans than to any other nation. Why? Because they knew they would be treated better. If the Japanese or Russians had captured you, you might be tortured and even killed. Now, why was America's treatment of prisoners so different than that of the, of the Russians or the Japanese? Well, maybe it's because Jesus taught, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. This value of life determined the treatment of prisoners. Military has a motto, no man left behind. Because although the mission is important, the life of every soldier has worth. And we will not leave them behind. The emphasis on life is not found in many other places. Years ago, I worked at the then Bank One. I worked with a team of consultants working on updating the bank software because during the Y2K, Y2K scare, to those who remember those days, my boss was an immigrant from Greece. We were talking one day about the differences between America and Greece, and he said to me that America's values life more than the Europeans do. I, I couldn't grasp that thought. Doesn't everybody value life? Isn't that just instinct? How do Europeans value life less than Americans? What does that look like? Well, I think I understand now. America is an exceptional place to live because Christian values are woven into its DNA. Not every country has this. While Christian values definitely influence European culture, it's not part of its DNA structure like it is that of America's. You know, in the last episode, I mentioned that Frederick Nietzsche talked about the shadows of God meaning that the influence of God still exists even after God is dead. Not that God is actually dead because they don't even believe that God exists, but the idea of God and the moral code that comes from a Christian belief in God is dead. And those shadows of God would still exist even though man has removed the past for the need of a supernatural being to explain life. It will take a long time for those shadows, that influence, to die. And what is very eye-opening and scary is that in many ways he was right about that point. They have killed God in the academic section, the media, the entertainment, the government, big tech, science, and even in many of the churches. What has saved us up until this point has been those shadows of God, those values that have influenced our nation. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This is a question. Can an atheist have good morals? Let's assume that a stranger's drowning. Will the atheist try and save the person who's drowning? Yes, it's very likely that he will. But where did that moral instinct come from? That's the real question. It came from living in a Christian nation that has taught biblical morals. You may think, like, I didn't... Doesn't everybody value life in such a way as to want to save a drowning victim? No. 
in Russia and, and in India also, and probably other places, there is a saying, the tears of a stranger are only water. They do not feel obligated to help a stranger. Their family, yes. Their friends, yes. But not a stranger. But in America, even the instinct in most atheists would be to save the person. This is because the shadows of God even affect the non-believer. But I'm afraid those shadows of God are becoming darker and harder to recognize. Each generation is losing a little more shadow. It's like the genealogy of King David. David experienced the presence of God. Solomon saw the presence of God in his father David. Rehoboam only heard about the presence of God in his grandfather David. And eventually the generations that followed, very few did not even hear of God's presence. In every generation, they have, have to experience God for themselves and keep God alive in their generation. Those who fought for the emancipation of the slaves experienced God afresh during their time. Through the Second Great Awakening and Revival of the 19th century, there were those who stood up against this evil and slavery was ended. Every generation has to fight to protect this fundamental value or we lose everything. In the early 20th century, one of the untold stories in American history is the eugenics issue, the systematic elimination of defective or unwanted breeds, stocks, those that were unfit or defective. In 1917, a silent movie was released called Black Stork. It was based on a real case in 1910. The movie was about a mother who gives birth to a defective baby. She agonizes whether to ask the doctors to save the infant. She imagines her son growing up as a crippled hunchback, ridiculed and bullied as a child and later shunned by society. A later version came out in 1927 and where the story was about a father wanting a young man who wants to marry his daughter to have a physical examination in case he has quote-quote tainted blood that would pass on any undesirable traits. Margaret Sanger, founder of today's Planned Parenthood, around that same time was driven by eugenics. She was a racist who not only wanted the elimination of defective babies, she wanted to eliminate black and Chinese babies as well. And it was because of those shadows of God, those influence of, of Christianity, that you, the eugenics movement was defeated at that time. Our generation today has the biggest challenge yet. And we must not lose this fight for life because if we do, we lose everything. How we are on the life issue today. Well, on the abortion issue, I've got some good news. Over the last couple of years, 250 different pieces of pro-life legislation have been introduced. This younger generation is more pro-life than their parents. In some cases, 20 to 25% more so. 80% of the younger generation oppose abortion on demand of up through nine months. It used to be that only 44% wanted to see Roe versus Way overturned. But when they were told that Roe versus Way allows abortion rights up until nine months to the time of birth, 
said that it was wrong. We must not lose the battle over the identity politics. You see, this is favoring one group of people over another. Instead of valuing each individual, identity politics separates the oppressed from the oppressor. And of course, they decide who the oppressed is and who the oppressor is. It divides people according to the group that they belong to. Poor against rich. Race against race. Women against men. College and Colleges and universities accept students not from their achievements and their GPA scores, but by what group they belong to. Well, what about hate crimes? I don't like hate crimes. Two people can commit the same crime in the same town, and the severity of the punishment is determined by what group you belong to. One rule for me and another rule for you. Free speech is being censored. Tech giants and politicians working together to close the mouths of Christians and conservatives. This is not valuing the individual life. Here's what I want to leave with you today. When looking at any political or cultural issue, use the life principle as a basis of whether that issue is right or wrong. Let it be your starting point your Geiger counter. Secondly, be careful not to fall into any false narratives. They will use our commitment to life against us. They will use language in such a way that if we don't agree with them, then we are hypocrites who are really mean-spirited and intolerant of others. They will word it in such a way to make it sound like that they are for some special group that is being oppressed when in fact they are devaluing the very group they pretend to champion for. This is where we as a church need wisdom and biblical literacy. That's why it's so important. If it does not give the same value of life to every person the same, we need to run from that. We need to have the wisdom to know the difference. Third, work actively to promote and demonstrate biblical life principles. Train yourself to think instinctively about every life being important. We are in the helping business. Pray for that instinct to help and the wisdom to know how. This is how good, healthy, prosperous societies are created. It is Christians that inspired the building of hospitals. Many of the inventions and medical breakthroughs have come from people who have committed to that field because of their effort to make every individual better off. This is the power of the Christian. We spend our lives working to make others better off. We are working to make other people's lives better. And that is the fight I am glad to be a part of. Let me leave you with this story. In World War II, a Methodist, a Jew, Jewish rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a Reformed Church minister were on board the Dorchester, a ship that was headed toward Europe. It was hit by a German torpedo. As the ship was sinking, these four chaplains helped sailors get into lifeboats 
and gave out their own life jackets when the supply ran out. As the ship was going down, survivors could see these four chaplains, arm in arm, praying and singing hymns. This is what we do as Christians. We value and we protect life. That is what has made America an exceptional place in the history of mankind. This is why our worldview of life is the most important issue. Everything depends on what road we decide to take. Thanks for listening. Please help us get this message out and, sus and subscribe today. Refocus. Reclaim. Rebuild.